Join the conversation. Join the conversation. You're with Cape Talk. A warm welcome and welcome back to Long With Lester. It's a podcast series which allows us to do the longer interviews that we want to do that we just don't have time for during the course of the day. But you now have the chance to listen to some of South Africa's most interesting people as we delve into what makes them tick and also how they see the world. Today we are speaking to author Terry Ann Adams. She is not only a prolific writer but also an advocate for the rights for people with disabilities. Her debut book, Those Who Live in Cages, causing quite a stir on the literary scene and it is looking to be a South African great Terry Ann Adams. She joins me now. Terry Ann, how are you doing today? Awe I'm a right man. <laughs> and that Awe Masakant comes through, that bubbly personality is something that comes through very, uh, very thoroughly in your book. Firstly, what is those who live in cages? What's it all about? So, so those who live in cages was a little bit of an experiment um, at me looking at the lives of women and just women in, in a colored community, the colored community I'm from, which is El Dorado Park. And I wanted to see what would happen if we let women tell their own stories instead of the usual that you get where women are being spoken of. And so so the novel explores a lot of themes that are very close in the colored community. It looks at and it looks at um teenage angst and um domestic violence and also just that thing, man. You know when you're from the township when you're like yesterday, the day I get out of elders. They're not even gonna know. <laughs> So, yeah, that's Growing up in, in communities like Eldorado Park, like Grassy Park in Cape Town, like Hanover Park, like Manenberg, like areas in uh, Port Elizabeth and also Durban, there is a, a, a something, a commonality that that, uh, that that runs through each of them. Not just that it being, you know, communities of what is known as colored people in South Africa, but there is a commonality in those communities. Do you know what that is? We all want to move. We literally are just like counting down to the day that we move. And that is fueled by systemic oppression because you would never want to leave your community if your community was not plagued by, uh, you know, in Cape Town, you've, you've got the gangsterism and in Aldous, you've got the drug addiction. And you, you, you wouldn't want to move if systemic oppression didn't run through your your community like a hundred meter athlete. Um, so I think that's the biggest commonality and also the sort of neglect that happens in colored communities in the, in the post-apartheid complex where we, we don't see much development, we don't see much attention and there's just this despair. And does that come very much through in, in those who live in cages? Very much so. And I think I most of the characters... Um, have this sort of negative sentiment. And listen, I'm from Aldous. I can tell you, it's not all bad. I now live in a suburb and I can't just go next door and be like, you know? So yes, each of the characters 
recognize that the systemic oppression is what's bringing the community back. But the novel also looks at what makes the community great mm. and what makes living in Aldo's so like what makes it more special, um, which is this, this thing that we've done as colored people where we have adapted. So, yeah, we do look at that. You, you follow in a, a very rich tradition of writing for what is known as colored people living in Johannesburg, the Gauteng area. Um, Chris van Veek, uh growing up in Riverley. Um, in in Johannesburg, writing Shirley, goodness uh, and, and mercy. Is, is that some of the and, and and other novels as well? Is that some of the the uh, the, the inspiration that, that 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 you looked to? Almost definitely, Shirley, goodness and mercy was a very the, the first time I read it. I was like, yes, man, I can identify with all of this, and I I loved um, just being able to like identify landmarks, you know, when he speaks about the mine dumps and when he speaks about Langlachter, those are places that I know. Um, Diane Hoffmeyer's Boyke, You Better Believe It, was also a very big inspiration in, in writing cages because I could also, um, as a person who has nystagmus, you know, being called skill for most of my life, that was something I could also truly identify with. What's your thoughts on, on, on writing for the accessibility of particularly people of color, uh, we are we have a country with a rich publishing tradition, but simultaneously we have a country with, I believe, a very limited reach in terms of what we actually read. Our people don't necessarily read. Is it about making literature as simplistic as possible so that at least people have? get that that feeling of knowing what's it like to sit and read with something in your hands and spending hours just plying over over that book whether it be serious or not is it simply as 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 simplistic as giving people what they want to read so that they at least get that 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 habit of actually reading i think it's very important to give people something that they identify with you know i grew up in the library and the library was very empty and people in the library even knew me because I was always there. And I could only, what I had access to was your Enid Blyton's and um, Judy Bloom and um, Jane Austen. And as much as those books took me to different locations outside of South Africa, it was also not easy because I, I was an avid reader it was very easy for me to to pick them up mm. but it was not easy for me to sell them you know to my cousins to be like oh read Pride and, and, and Prejudice which is one of my favorite books of all time you get someone from elders going my why should I care about <laughs> Mr. Darcy you know so it was not very accessible to to people where I find now that we've got books like Mermaid Fillet and um, Kinnis and Eli Cruz. And finally, we've got something where they can read and they can see themselves mm. in those books. And even if you look at um, some of the books that, that Blackbird publishes, and you've got these books that now people in marginalized communities have access, and you don't have to hunt mm. for them in the library because there's so many of them now. Mm. And I think that's very important to establish a reading culture, especially among adults and um, young adults. In the mm. and, and more and more, we, we are having 
literature coming out and written in the vernacular. You know, the phenomena of, of, of cops as a form of communication, particularly in Cape Town. And I think of, for example, the, the book Kinnis by, by, by Chase Reese, written completely in what is known as the Cape Town vernacular of, of cops. Um, many, particularly young readers, being very attracted to it because... This is the language in which they communicate with their peers, and seeing it in a written form in black and white must be actually something to behold. Mm. You know, it is very important for us to take what we, what people are calling the vernacular, and to make it mainstream. You know, because I think "caps" is valid as it is as valid as what people would call saver Africans or standard Africans, you know, who gets to decide what the hell is standard? And as much as um, what I write in, in, in cages, which is how we speak, you know, in, in, in elders, even the way we are reimagining English, um, it, it was a toss up for me, like, am I going to write how we speak English? In, in, in our colored communities, because I even find as much as I, I want to raise my son, you know, to speak of the Queen's English, I still say things like, come away there, oh. <laughs> because that's, that's how we as people have adapted what is, what is these, um, what is English, which is a colonial language, and standard, which is uh, Afrikaans, which has been forced down our throat. Mm. And it's so important, once you write a language down, it becomes real you know it becomes accepted it becomes i want to see a thesis a phd thesis written completely in caps i want to see a phd thesis written in namakwa africans written in joe africans because it's not like these languages are not valid what makes them so different different from standard you know uh, but what I but uh, what I enjoy about a language provi- providing that platform for a, a commonality, I often marvel being in Cape Town. I mean, I used to live in the Woodstock Salt River area, and I'd walk down to the main road, and I would uh, come across kids who are well clearly the children of of African migrants to 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 South mm. Africa. That's how I'm sure they would identify as themselves. But at the same time, as you walk past them and walk by them, this clear Cape vernacular coming through. It reminds me of when I took an Uber and I spoke to this gentleman, the driver, and he's originally from Congo. He's been in South Africa for probably about 15 years already. Three kids were born in South Africa. And I asked him about this, what I had noticed about particularly the children of African migrants, you know, coming and being raised with this Cape dialect. And there's obviously, you know, an influence of the schools that they attend. And he says, all he hears all day in his house is daddy, daddy, daddy. And I absolutely love that. I love that about this particular city that I live in. And I'm sure other places around South Africa where, where, you know, particularly migrants, people who live in the same area, you know, creates this community through a shared language, a, a, th- a shared dialect, a shared vernacular. And I think that is quite a bit the, be- the beauty of, of many of the townships and places that we call home. Yeah, it's so true. I spent my teenage years living in Johannesburg South. So that is your your Turfentains, Kenilworth. Um, I particularly lived in Bella Vista, which is a small kind of community um, in Joburg South. And I went to a very multiracial school. Um, and 
there we had you know your um african migrant um communities and but we also had children who were born and raised in south africa that came from um other African countries and we all understood each other, you know, and at some point we all had this universal accent at the school because everybody could um, just identify with with the language that developed in Joburg South. And I thought the beauty of, of Joburg South and that um, Duffentain and Kenilworth area is that you've got these melting pots of your old Africana communities, old Greek, old Portuguese communities. So you have this wonderful mix of like um, lower middle class white people, colored people, African migrant communities. And then you've got the kids coming to school from Soweto. And it was just this beautiful mess. <laughs> I really loved spending my, my high school time there. Welcome back. You are listening to Long With Lester, a podcast series where we get to have a bit more of a longer conversation with some of the more interesting people in South Africa. Today we're speaking to Terry Ann Adams. She's the author of the newly published book, Those Who Live in Cages. It chronicles uh, her life, uh, her youth growing up in the Eldorado Park suburb of Johannesburg. But uh, Terry Ann is also an advocate and activist for the rights of disabled people. Um, Terry Ann is a South African who lives with uh, albinism, and she has long been at the forefront of also advocating for the rights of people with disabilities. You, in fact, wrote your um, your, your dissertation on the the rights and the accessibilities of uh, of of everyday places of 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 public spaces for for uh, for people who live with disabilities. Tell me a bit about a, a bit more about that, Tyrion. So, in my honors year, I actually wrote two uh, research papers, and the first one was about the history of the disability rights movement in South Africa, um, a very unknown subject. You know, it's not something you're going to commonly find in your syllabus. And that's where I touched on um, accessibility in, in our South African buildings and how people were fighting already from the 80s. I mean, people don't even know that people with disabilities were in Codessa fighting for the rights of disabled persons in, in um, the new dispensation. And Pe uh, uh, people with disabilities were involved in the writing of the constitution. And these are these are things that you don't commonly know. Mm. And I wanted to look into that as part of my, my mid-year research paper. Mm. And then my final research paper was on the representation of people with disabilities in American film. Mm. And I also looked at the American movement of people with disabilities um, and how that was different from the South African um, disability rights movement, and we, I, I was quite fascinated at how in America disability communities are, are so much more established. Mm. They are um, united. They, I mean, if you look at shows like Little Women, you know, you you get to see that little people in America have their own communities that they've built. Um, that are even established, and it comes from their disability rights movement that was organized from the 1800s already, you know. So it was very interesting to look at how disability then translates into your media and how that then hinders disability rights. And how is that then translated in, in, 
in a South African context um, when more and more people, um, I, I'm seeing a lot more particularly people with albinism, featuring not only in our TV magazine shows, but also within our series and, and sitcoms. There's a, a great deal of, of normalization that has, uh, that has been happening over the last few years. This is amazing, and it's, it's wonderful, and I'm all for it. But for me, I think it's also important, what are the narratives that we are telling when you are including people with disabilities in, in television and in film? So, for example, um, if you look at whenever we have a, a, a storyline of a person in a wheelchair, it's always sort of a punishment, you know, or a humbling for a villain character. And that translates into real life because if we look at common perceptions of people in wheelchairs, especially people who have been um, previously able-bodied and they are now paralyzed, people always see it as sort of like a punishment and then you have to strive for abledness. And we all know that life imitates art. So as much as we've got this renewed movement of hyper-visibility of people with albinism, especially within our media spaces, what are the narratives being told around these uh, the people with albinism and what are we incorporating it into our fiction stories as well mm. do we have people coming into opi coffee having a, a cup of coffee and they've got a, a, a wheelchair mm. or they signing you know in the background and i think that's where we start to normalize disability in everyday life so how do we then start doing that? It's, 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 it's by purposely and actively casting characters with disabilities, but at the same time not making the, the, disability, the disability, the narrative, the story. Uh, you could just have someone who is in a wheelchair being a main character of a sitcom simply for the fact that they are a person who makes use of a wheelchair and not having to tell that backstory or to contextualize it. And that's how we go about normalizing it. Most definitely. I think if two storylines that's really, well, three, that stand out for me in incorporating the struggles of having a disability but not making it this learning moment was in Game of Thrones. And I don't know if you remember Tyrion Lannister, which is Peter Dinklage's character, and how they would weave in the discrimination against um, people who have dwarfism or little people. But Tyrion was brilliant character with his own brilliant mind and in season eight he was a brilliant idiot <laughs> and we did much work we knew he had walked him and we knew the struggles that came with that but it was not just solely based on that you know a uh, character in south african television would be the character of cookie in muvango who was deaf and belonged to the deaf community. And she signed, and she was KK's love interest, and she had a life outside of just her being um, deaf or in the deaf community. Yeah. So I think it can be done. Um, you can even have villains with disabilities, because people with disabilities are not always saints. You know, in, in Black Lightning, the main villain is Tobias Whale, and he's got albinism, and it shows his struggles as a person with albinism, not being able to be in the light or in the sun, but he's still a complete, well-rounded, hateable villain. Mm. And, and that's what we need. In terms of albinism in, in South Africa, look, if you are South African and if you have don't know someone with albinism, where have you been? It's become, you know, it's... 
Mm-hmm. We know in our communities, in our families, people with albinism. So, but why does it has it taken so long for these characters to be represented, and and why does stigma still still linger? People are very prone to mystifying and I, I dare I say fictionalizing almost what they don't understand, mm. and. For a very long time, the narrative around albinism has been a charity narrative and it's been a health or a medical narrative. So we've always pushed this. um, We've always pushed the narrative of like, we need to break the stigma. We need to break the stigma um, around people with albinism not disappearing when we die or, or not being these, you know, mystical creatures. And as much as we've been focusing on the destigmatization, which is very important work, we've also been othering ourselves. And we've also leaned into these medical definitions of, of, of albinism that we haven't even looked at what is the social implications of being a person that has albinism in, in South Africa. And I think in your smaller communities, you still have people who hide their children with albinism. I was very lucky that my family was just like, ah, you know what, this is our child and we're not going to, you know, but in the same El Dorado Park, we had people with albinism that was being hidden in their homes or, or not um, the family not fully embracing them, you know. Um, so there's still also that stigmatization of not wanting to have someone in your family who's different. Um, so, yeah, South Africa's got a very long way to go. Terry Ann Adams, author of Those Are Living Cages. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Best of luck with the book and best of luck for the future. Thank you so much for having me, Lester. On capetalk.co.za. On the app. On DSTV Channel 885. And across the city on 567 AM. Join the conversation. This is Cape Talk. This is Cape Talk.